You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back to the MLB.com StatCast podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello, joined here by Matt Myers, MLB.com national editor. And uh, it's almost an emergency podcast. It's Monday before the World Series starts tomorrow, and we felt like we don't usually record on Mondays. But we have to get a podcast down before the series starts, right? Yes, we want to get our predictions, our hot takes on record. Um, for the record, if we're talking about predictions, my World Series prediction was Dodgers over Astros back in April. So I'm feeling pretty good right now. Uh, I said, I think I said Cubs over Astros, but we we both, I'm sure, had Dodgers Cubs in the NLCS. I mean, this is the series that 2017 was always promised, right? Like, I guess with Cleveland at the end of the year, you can't really say these are by far the two best teams but these were the teams that this season i think should have ended up with like all due respect to the yankees they're gonna be here for a long time 2017 should be dodgers astros i'm so pleased at the outcome here yes and uh, as you've probably seen it's the first world series since 1970 where both teams had 100 wins so it's pretty that's pretty cool like that's been a long time that like basically the two best basically the two best regular season teams have kind of met in the uh in the playoffs. This is a tangent, I guess. In the now, World Series. Now I need to go back and figure out how many seasons since then have even had two 100-win teams in opposite leagues. I don't know the answer to that. Uh, I bet you it's not every single season. Anyway, there's a lot to talk about. I get, at the end, we will make some um, predictions. And then um, I'm going to fly off to LA tomorrow to see the first two games in person. Uh, and I'm very excited about that. And we're going to get into just how hot it's going to be in Los Angeles in a minute. But first, let's talk about how we got here. And I think, you know, we've talked a lot about these teams in the regular season so far. And I'm sort of interested in what they've done in the postseason. And I guess we can just put out one overarching everything is a small sample size caveat for everything else we talk about because we're not talking about a ton of October games here. Right? Of course, but I mean, that's, I mean, we're going to get into expected outcomes, expected weighted on base, expected batting average, expected slugging. And part of what those tools are supposed to do is sort of like cut through some of the small sample size issues. Again, it's still, it's still apparent, but. It cuts through it a little bit. Right. So these two teams were very, very good in the regular season. And obviously, they made it to the World Series. So they've been very, very good in the postseason. So for the most part, there's not a, a tremendous amount of difference except for one particular area. So I look at what they've done so far um, hitting, right? So the Dodgers so far in the postseason, expected weighted on base has been 345. Now, remember, that's quality of contact. It does include strikeouts and walks. The league average this year was 327. So 345, that's above average. Their actual has been 374, as you'd expect a team playing this well has, you know, gotten a little bit, I don't want to say lucky, but let's say fortunate. Like, mm-hmm. they've outperformed uh, a little bit. And then it's interesting for the Astros. Their expected weighted on base is 332, not terribly different from 345. Their actual is 322. And I think we talked about this last week with all those barrels against the Yankees that they absolutely did not get. Yeah, I have to say I feel a little bit of indication for uh, people who listened to our last episode after Game 5. We recorded Yankees had just taken the 3-2 lead, winning three straight at home. And we kind of went through the Astros' results versus performance in the games leading up to that in the ALCS and basically said they've been hitting a lot, the ball a lot harder than you know the results would indicate. So look for that to turn around in Houston. Sure enough, they scored seven runs in game six. Four nothing winning game seven. It worked out pretty nicely. And if you believe in karma, one of those runs was a uh, Jose Altuve one percent home run. <laughs> the ball is literally a home run one percent of the time. We expected a little bit of that with those ballparks. And that's but that's also part of part of the formula here is like you know when things when things quote unquote kind of even out, you know you start to get some of those 
you know, going your way that sort of balances out some of the like, you know, 400 foot barrels that end up in someone and end up in Aaron Hicks's glove. So, yeah, I think overall the hitting skill level has been similar, right? I know the Astros have, you know, they had an amazing ALDS against the Red Sox and that was pretty rough against the Yankees for a while. Uh, but when we look at the actual hitters, so there are 70 hitters so far this postseason with at least 10 plate appearances. And as you'd expect, these two teams are really like littering the top here, but it's it's so much more Dodgers. If I'm looking at the top 10 here and I'm looking at expected weighted on base, number one in baseball so far this postseason at 506, Enrique Hernandez. Now, he did hit three home runs in one game, and let's point out what a boost that was because in all the other games of this postseason, he's only had 10 plate appearances, 250 batting average, 400 on base, 375 slugging. It's fine. But like he's made his entire October, maybe his entire career, because of that one single game. Yeah. And I, I think it's uh, it's also funny, just as a side note. Now I've heard from a lot of Dodger fans who are like, "You have to start him every single game. He's got he's got power potential." And I'm like, "Listen, I know he hit one of those home runs against the righty when Hector Rondon just like laid the fattest slider you've ever seen. Um, but he mashes lefties for his career." 270 on base, uh, excuse me, 270 batting average against lefties, 364 on base, 518 slugging. That's 37 points above league average against lefty pitching. That's great. Start him against Dallas Keuchel. Uh, against righties, 207, 265, 324, 37 points below average against righties. He should not be playing against any right-handed pitcher. I, I, so, yes, against Keuchel, no against everybody else. A quick aside about uh, Kike Hernandez. I just discovered, uh, I'd forgotten, I should say, that he actually debuted with he came up with the Astros and debut with the Astros in 2014. He played 24 games with the Astros um, and hit his first career home run with them. The only home run he hit with them. So, uh, but it's a great it's a great moment. I went back and watched it. I encourage you to do the same. His whole family's in the stands and. Uh, the Astros broadcast had a camera on his family when he hit the home run. I guess those were the lean years for the Astros. So they were, I think, looking for anything to get excited about. So they had a, a camera following Kike Hernandez's family for his MLB debut. And his family's going nuts as the ball, as the ball goes over the fence. It's pretty cool. Of course, he hit it off Chris Young, a former uh, StatCast podcast favorite and a right-handed pitcher. But uh, the numbers are pretty clear. He will. He should and will start against Keuchel. I do not think he will start against anyone else. Nor, nor absolutely should he. I'm just looking at the other top hitters this postseason. Uh, four of the top five are in this World Series. You know, Hernandez is number one. Altuve is number three. That makes sense. Justin Turner is tied with him. Seager didn't actually play in the NLCS, but he was very good against the Diamondbacks, so he's in the top five. Uh, I think we're we're always going to forget how good Michael Taylor actually was in that Washington series. A 4.96 expected weighted on base. Um, also in this, our top dozen here: Gurriel, Chris Taylor, Puig, Forsythe. Good teams are good is the takeaway. Gurriel actually has the um, highest exit velocity of any uh, batter in the postseason and the most hard hit balls. That's that's actually very interesting because I remember uh, he was almost seen as a bit of the weak link coming into the season. What we're going to get from him, he had a really nice year. Now, this is interesting, and uh, file this away for, for a little later. Of all these 70 batters, the weakest expected weighted on base, Curtis Granderson, a .086. So the team with the best offense has had the single worst hitter. I know I pumped this guy up a lot. I'm kind of crushed by this. But also, is it? I mean, to go back a second, uh, isn't he often the guy that kind of would get in instead of Kike Hernandez? Well, as like platoon partners. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. So, I mean, despite this, it's sort of an interesting yin and yang here, right? Because part of the reason I'm guessing why Dodgers fans are calling for Kike to play every game is because of how bad Granderson looked. Am, am I oh, wrong? Well, there's no question about that. Granderson's looked awful, but they do have Ethier as an option. Peterson's an option. They have a lot of lefty guys who don't, they don't have to be Granderson. I'm not even sure if, 100% sure Granderson makes the roster. Like, we're assuming from our vantage point here on Monday afternoon, Seager will make it on. We don't know who's going to be dropped for him. 
And uh, yeah, that's true because also I think that Dave Roberts said that if Seager makes it, they're going to keep Culberson too as, as insurance. Keep so that's right. That yeah. it could be Granderson as the odd man out. I would say I would not keep Culberson because I feel like you could take Seager, and if he has to leave a game, you can put Chris Taylor back at shortstop. You can even put Hernandez there. And if there's something seriously enough wrong with Seager that he has to be removed, you just bring Culberson back. That's what I would do. I don't think that's what's going to happen. Um, anyway, going to the pitching side now, I think this is interesting too. The Dodgers pitching has been really good, but it sort of breaks down into starters and relievers. Um, overall, the Dodgers pitchers have been better. 257 expected weighted on base. Now Houston's got a 297, and the Dodgers have had a 242 actual weighted on base, and Houston has had a, a 301. So basically, on both sides, earning more or less what they've received. Now it gets a little different when you split it into rotation and bullpen. Um, the Houston rotation has been fantastic. Obviously, Verlander has been a monster, uh, but Keuchel's been great. And we saw Charlie Morton. Oh, I've been a huge fan of Charlie Morton for so many years. Uh, you know, he, we said the other the last week he looked great. I think in that game three and gave up seven runs, but visually he looked great. And then game seven, he looked great and he actually was great. And I, I had so many people like tweeting at me, going, "Wait a minute." Charlie Morton throws 97 with movement on the outside corner. And, yeah. and it's like, yeah. And his answer for that was, I tried to. I just, I decided I was going to do this and it worked. On on, on uh, Saturday night during the game, literally within a span of like four minutes, I got text messages from two different friends who obviously haven't been paying that close attention being like, wait, Charlie Morton throws 97 now? <laughs> with and, movement and, and a high no. spin rate and he's fantastic. Um, so anyway, because of the, you know, Verlander and, and all these guys, Houston's uh, starting rotation so far, 282 expected on base, which is great, and a 280 actual. So exactly what you'd expect. Dodgers have been very good as well. 302 expected, 295 actual. So both of these teams have um, two a pair of elite aces at the top of the rotation, right? Kershaw and, and no question. Darvish and then Verlander and Keuchel and then some very interesting names following them up. Now we go to the bullpen. This is where things are going to get a little bit different. Um, we've talked about the Dodgers bullpen and they were unbelievable. 182 expected weighted on base, a 154 actual weighted on base, which seems almost impossible. Uh, and then the Astros, 320 expected and a 338 actual. Now to be fair, Lance McCullers uh, was fantastic in game seven in relief. He looked great. But, uh, you know, they've got a lot of good names down there, like Gregerson and, and Giles and Davinsky. And they, they just, the performance hasn't been there at all. Yeah. And it, it's, it, you know, the manager AJ Hinch is in a weird spot because he clearly has lost faith in basically all those guys. And maybe the, the couple days of, you know, between series, get a, get a little bit of a reset, give a little pep talk. I don't know what he's going to do, but it was abundantly clear by the end of the series that he had no faith in them, even bringing in Ken Giles. Uh, with a 7-1 lead in Game right. 6, which seemed crazy because you thought like you're going to want them for two innings possibly in Game 7. They they sort of lucked out and ended up not having to use anyone other than McCullers. But, I mean, right now, and this, to me this is like the biggest storyline of the World Series is who is he going to trust in his bullpen, who can actually come through and get some big outs. Because, you know, a lot of what we've seen now with the modern game is it used to be it used to be as recently as maybe a couple years ago with a lot of teams, it was like the strategy had become, okay, let's take a lot of pitches. Let's try and wear out the starting pitcher and get to the bullpen, get to like the, you know, the middle of the bullpen. With a lot of teams now, that's a bad strategy. You you actually hope you get to bat against the starter the third time instead of facing their bullpen coming in in the fifth inning, particularly a bullpen like the Dodgers, for example. Yeah, and not only has he not had faith in his relievers, AJ Hinch really didn't make many moves, right? Like they haven't used their bench at all. Juan Centeno is the third catcher. He's had one plate appearance. Uh, Derek Fisher hasn't hit in like ten days. I think uh, uh, Cameron Mapin got like that one start. And so I wonder, you know, will they make any moves on their roster? Statcast favorite Jake Marisnik may actually potentially be available. I know he hurt his thumb. I think that if he's on the roster, he's um, he's only going to be in basically in a defensive replacement uh, pinch running role. I mean, granted, that's they didn't use. It 
Fisher any more than that anyway. So it's not like they'd really be losing much. But um, anyway, so what, what, the point I was trying to make though is that it, like with a team like the the Astros right now, you want your starting pitchers to give give you as much length as possible. But the Dodgers, obviously a very patient team, can wait you out. And I feel like a big subplot is going to be them taking pitches, trying to wear a kind of this more like trend of five years ago, like trying to get to that Astros bullpen as early as possible. Which is which is hilarious to think about saying that like four months ago. It's like, man, I can't wait to face Chris Davinsky. Yeah. <laughs> like everything but, is on attack. But, but that's what it is right now. And it'll also be really interesting in the first two games in the NL Park, when do you pinch hit for your pitcher? Because you're not, I mean, you don't get much from pitchers anyway, but you're definitely not getting anything from Verlander or Keuchel at the plate. So there's going to be a situation probably in like the fifth inning where there's two two men on with two outs, and it's like, what do you, what do, you do? Yeah. Where the, the, the book would certainly say pinch hit, but with the way this team is set up now, there's no way Hinch does it. I mean, that's one of the many things I really enjoy about this matchup because there's so many interesting questions like that. And, and kind of going back to these pitchers here, 62 pitchers so far this postseason have faced 10 guys. Uh, you know that Kenley Jansen is only number two in expected weighted on base? It's actually Kenta Maeda who's been the best. Now, granted, 15 plate appearances. We're not exactly talking about a lot, um, but he has become a really, really strong weapon with that cutter against right-handed batters. And I can easily see, you know, Kershaw going six and a third or whatever. And then here comes like George Springer and it's going to be Kenta Maeda. I mean, I think that's perfect. It's a really good use of him. And also on this, the, the top list here, like Tony Watson's up there, Brandon Morrow, you Darvish. Uh, there's actually... One, two, three, four, five Dodgers before you get to the first Astro, which is Verlander. And then, um, as I said, remember before that Curtis Granderson has been the least effective batter? Well, the least effective pitcher of any pitcher is Will Harris. I, I kind of like that these two great teams each have, like, one guy pulling up the rear. Yeah, it's uh, Will, Will Harris, and that's the, the Astros roster situation, sort of the back of that bullpen could also end up being, you know, a pretty interesting discussion because of the Marisnik question, him hanging over, and if they're going to want to try and um, – be more aggressive with platoons against the left-handed pitchers that the the Dodgers have because you know if you if you insist on playing McCann and you insist on playing Josh Reddick, which it sort of seems like Hinch is going to do because he played them he played them both against CC Sabathia in Game Seven. Particularly if he started Reddick in Game Seven against Sabathia when Reddick was 0 for 22 or whatever. I can't imagine he's going to sit him now. And he's not going to start Gaddis. Gaddis did not catch Dallas Keuchel one time all season long. It's, it's very difficult to imagine that that will change a game more of the world. But that really, I mean, that really hinders your lineup if you're the Astros because it basically puts, I mean, against the tough lefty, Kershaw for sure, and even Rich Hill, you're really kind of behind the eight ball if you're basically essentially punting the those two those two slots in the lineup, not to mention the, the pitcher having to hit. And, and don't forget, Alex Wood is going to get a start, too. The Dodgers have three lefties in the starting rotation around you, Darby. I mean, on the flip side, at the top of the order, most of the Astros' best hitters are right-handed hitters. So they're, they're sort of well-equipped at the top of the order to hit those guys. But the bottom of the order, it's a little more dicey. Granted, for, his career, uh, for 2017, at least, Josh Reddick did not have much of a split in terms of batting average and OPP, but he hit for much more power against righties. Yes. And, um, you know, we always, single year splits are always concerning. Like, Yasiel Puig actually had a weird reverse split this year, which he never did before. But, I mean, Redick, I, I only looked at those splits just because he's sort of been a weird hitter who's actually kind of transformed himself a bit over his career. He used to be actually kind of a high strikeout guy. Oh, yeah. And now he's like a guy who hardly ever, like, by the standards of two of the modern game, he basically never strikes out. Yeah. He's just like, he's just like the rest of the Astros, right? We <laughs> talked about that. Um, so, what I really I find interesting is, you know, I think the, the narrative of the Astros so far has been Justin Verlander, right? Has been unbelievable, but he's not starting in game one. It's actually, it's Dallas Keuchel and it's Kershaw. And that's a really, really great matchup. I mean, those, I guess you throw Chris Sale in there, and that's probably two of the three best left handed starters uh, in baseball. So, that's exactly what you want. Like, I, this has always been the issue for the Dodgers in the past. Kershaw has to save their bacon at the end, and now they're starting. Yeah, you know Dan Harron or whoever is like their fourth starter because he's rested. Um, so I think this is interesting because 
as we're going to get into in a second, it's going to be really hot. The ball is going to fly a little bit. Um, these two pitchers, Keuchel especially, do a great job of keeping the ball low in the zone. I mean, Keuchel had a, a ground ball rate of 67%. That's the best of any starting pitcher uh, with 100 innings this year. And if you look on Baseball Savant, we have our detailed zone. So you can look at the lower third of the zone and actually the edges right below it. Nobody in baseball, no starting pitcher who threw at least 250 pitches, threw more pitches in that area than Dallas Keuchel uh, at nearly 30%. But Clayton Kershaw's up there, too. He's actually sixth, and uh, Alex Wood right behind him, so 27%. So I found that interesting. You have these two guys who do a really good job at throwing the ball low in the zone. But then I thought to myself, well, these are two pretty good offenses, and these are two offenses that crush lefties. So I looked up the opposite. What were the best offenses against lefties who threw low in the zone, and uh, both in the top six, Dodgers and Astros? And then I thought, well, what about— Top six in terms of expected weighted on base. Excuse me, expected weighted on base. And then I thought, well, what about just against lefties overall? And if you look at expected weighted on base, the Dodgers had the third best mark against lefties, and the Astros had the fourth best. And then in actual outcomes, and this is, I think, where Minute Maid Park comes in a little bit, uh, Astros were second— and the Dodgers are fourth. So I, this is really interesting because you have two undeniably elite starting pitchers against two offenses that do a pretty good job of mashing lefties, which is especially ironic because that was a story last year that the Dodgers couldn't hit lefties, and now they're great against lefties. Uh, but I, I think that's a really interesting strength versus strength matchup that we're going to see in game one. Yeah, but I mean, and it will be, I'm, you know, sort of fascinating to see how Hinch sets his lineup. And if he does end up playing Maven to really try and strengthen the um the uh, the balance the balance against Kershaw I still don't think he will but it, it'll be it would be a little gutsy for him to do it particularly after he sort of fell out of favor after that misplay in Game Three I don't think he will either but yeah you're right and uh, I think obviously for the Dodgers that's the one game where you will see Kike Hernandez uh, playing left field I think the other big story as I look forward to finding out in person tomorrow it's going to be so hot in L A the average uh, temperature in L A at this time of year is 77 degrees it is expected to be 100 degrees for game one, and then 97 degrees the next day uh, for game two. And we did a little work in looking at the hottest uh, World Series games ever. Now, obviously, we don't have reliable temperature data going back to 1908 and all this stuff. But for what we do have, the hottest track temperature was uh, 94 degrees for the first game of the 2001 World Series Yankees at Arizona. The roof was open. We looked this up. Uh, and this is going to be considerably warmer than that. So there's a lot of factors that are going to come into play here, uh, not to mention the sweat of like 40,000 people. It's going to be disgusting there. Um, but no, obviously there's some physics that goes in the working. Like you're going to hear on the broadcast, uh, this ball is flying out of here tonight, right? You're, you're just going to hear it a lot. And sometimes those things don't really make sense. But I think in this case, it's actually going to be valid. So uh, I did a little bit of research. We looked up the work of uh, esteemed physicist and former StackCast podcast guest, Dr. Alan Nathan. And according to his research, every 10 degrees of temperature can add approximately 3.3 feet of, dif- of distance. So if we assume that the average would be 77 degrees and we're actually going to get 100 degrees, it is possible that your average fly ball could go seven more feet. That's not nothing. I mean, that's going to turn some warning track balls into home runs. I mean, if you if you think back, for example, to those three homers that Kike Hernandez hit right. in Game 5, <laughs> each one of them basically cleared the fence by about less than seven feet. Right. So, so it could be the difference between a home run and not. I mean, this could seriously have an impact. I mean, it's, it's not just like one of those, uh, you know, those nuggets you'll hear like an old-timey broadcaster say there's some validity to this. So uh, that was cool. I thought that was, that's like, that's what the physics say. That's the theoretical model, right? But we have data. We have many, many years of baseball games. So I, I went and first I just looked for just this year uh, in the majors, and we can look at temperature data. So I broke it down into groups of 10 degrees, for example, 60 to 69, 70 to 79, et cetera, anything over 90. There's just not enough data on games that are over 100. Barely ever happens. Uh, and there's a pretty clear trend here. So if you were to look at games starting at 
90 degrees or going uh, higher. And obviously everything here is just at the start time. There's no pitch by pitch data and it will cool as the night goes on. But uh, for games this year that started at 90 degrees or warmer, 5.47 runs per game were scored. Uh, you drop that down into the 80s, it's 4.9 runs. Drop it down into the 70s, it's 4.5 runs. Very similar in the 60s. And then below 59 degrees, 4.3 runs a game. I mean, that is an undeniable trend. That's pretty clear. You do the same thing with slugging. It's 480 at the high end of the scale, 391 at the bottom end of the scale. That's the difference between Cole Calhoun and Corey Seager. I mean, that's a big deal. Um, there, You know, you can look at home runs per plate appearance. It's just, it makes sense. And it's not just... Uh, across MLB. Like I I thought that was an interesting start, but the game is played at Dodger Stadium, right? And we wanted to look at more than one year. So I looked at Dodger Stadium for the entirety of the 21st century. So 18 seasons of data is pretty much the same, right? When it's over 94.4 runs a game, that drops down to 4.2 in the 80s and about 4 in the 70s. Uh, Slugging percentage, you know, 4.16 when it's over 90, that drops down to 3.64 when it's below 60 at Dodger Stadium, which obviously isn't often, but it's happened. So I think this is interesting. This is one of those times where, uh, you know, the narrative is actually backed by the data. The ball will go a little bit farther, and it's likely we will see a little bit more offense, he says, prefacing a clear one nothing shutout through nine innings. <laughs> and how much of this do you think is, and there's no probably no scientific answer, so I'm asking you to just, you know, hypothesize. How much do you think of this is the physics of the ball flying farther, and how much of it is pitchers fatiguing? I think that's the right question to ask. It's, it's a great question. I think... I mean, we know for a fact the ball will go further. So sometimes a guy will say, oh, I, I gave up a ball to the warning track. I got out of the inning. But, oh, tonight it's a grand slam. No doubt about that. I do think the fatigue is going to be an issue. Um, but I also wonder if that's just going to mean that the the managers are going to have a quicker hook. And that's partially because the bullpens are rested. None of these teams haven't played in a couple of days. I think if there's any game not to expect Kershaw to go eight innings, I mean, this is going to be it, right? You know, it's, it's sort of funny because, like, you know, I'm looking at this 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 data you, you presented. And yesterday uh, we had one of our reporters ask Dave Roberts about the heat. And Dave Roberts was basically like, like, ah, well, you know, we're, we're Southern California people. Like, we're used to the heat. It's like Southern California isn't actually that hot. In in the in this century, the Dodgers have only played 70 home games where the start time was above 90 degrees. Yeah, well, that's <laughs> like that's I, like two per year. He also listen. I'm no Southern California native. I'm from New Jersey, but I know a little bit about the geography there. The weather by the beach is a lot different than the weather a little more inland where Dodger Stadium actually is. So it it is a little warmer there than it is at say you know the airport, which is a lot closer to the water. Um, but but you're right. And what I was kind of thinking when I was doing this is my quote unquote hot bucket was games that had a start temperature of 90 degrees and up. And this will fall into that, but it's going to be 100 degrees. I feel like that's a little bit different than 91 degrees, you know? So it's not, I don't think, unreasonable to say that this is unprecedented in recent memory. There's never been a, a giant air quotes fall classic in this way. And I think it's interesting. Now, Kershaw has actually only had three starts in the last four years where he started a game uh, 90 degrees or hotter. It's actually been great in those three starts. Uh, he's only allowed four earned runs, 29 strikeouts in 23 innings. He only did it once this year at home against Kansas City, 13 strikeouts for a complete game win. However, he then took the next nine days off because there was the All-Star game, and then he just didn't pitch the first series after that. Whether those are related, I don't know, um, but I found that interesting. Couldn't really do the same thing with Keiko because it's always hot in Houston, and it's hard to know for sure if the roof was open or not that night. Uh, but I do think that a guy who gets a lot of grounders, as Keiko does, may have somewhat of an advantage uh, when the ball is flying because it's hard to hit a home run on the ground. So maybe that's something for him. But I think in addition to everything else we've talked about, the heat is going to be just uh, an enormous subplot. And it's going to be hot, too, for game, not quite as hot, but still be in the 90s for game two, right? And that's when Justin Verlander's pitching. Yeah, Justin Verlander had the sixth highest fly ball rate allowed. Now, a good way to get around that is to just, you know, strike everybody out, which he's basically been doing. Um, but it's not difficult to see him giving up one of those, you know, 
quote unquote cheapish fly balls that you know Andre Ether seems like the perfect guy to do this right <laughs> that just floats it over into the right field pavilion. Um, so the heat, I think, and as you completely agree with you, the uh, the fatigue factor is going to be legit. And uh, I wonder if that actually is going to make it more likely that you have someone like McCann being hit for by uh by you know a pinch hitter and then letting another catcher come in because it's so hot it's got to be brutal behind the plate there's no (laughs) just thinking about that makes me tired i know exactly right all right so verlander as you talked about is going to start game two and uh, i know we talked a lot about verlander last week but then he had to go out and put up another great game so we've got to kind of update our leaderboards uh last (laughs) we were talking about how his spin uh, four seam fastball spin was elite and it was especially elite uh, in the playoffs, and then he went out last week on October 20th and had his highest spin four-seam game of the season, which also doubled as the highest spin four-seam game of the entire season for anybody and the second highest in the three years of StatCast tracking. He uh, had his RPM was 26.68 on October 20th, and uh, that's his highest of the season. He has been throwing the ball with velocity and spin-wise in a way we've rarely seen him do in years. Yeah, in game two, he had set his record, and then he beat his own personal best, and then in game in game six, he then went out and beat his personal best in terms of average four-seam spin rate. So he's really, you know... He's been amazing, and it'll be. I mean, it will be interesting to see if he can. You know, he's been pitching indoors, climate-controlled um, environment in Houston. Both those starts, it'll be interesting to see how that translates with the heat, where the, the grip is going to be a little bit different. If like he's going to be able to get the same kind of same kind of spin on, on his ball. Yeah, and it's interesting because it feels like he's been operating at like fifth gear constantly. And my my friend Eno Sarasafangras actually wrote about this the other day, where he was like, you know, during the season, the the, the difference between his average. Uh, fastball velocity in a game and his maximum was like five miles an hour and in the postseason it's like 1.8 miles per hour he's basically throwing all out the entire time um and i I guess you know it's the postseason you want to do what you want to do but you have to wonder if that's going to catch up with him especially you know in that kind of temperature yeah he actually i mean they actually sort of uh pulled pumped the brakes on him he threw 99 pitches in game in game six which for him is actually pretty it's a pretty modest number he got over 120 in game two so he has a little bit less than usual but it's He's really been been throwing hard and throwing a lot of pitches, and I mean that sort of his, he is definitely kind of like one of those people who sort of he's a freak. He just has sort of transcended um, the typical armrows of pitchers with this kind of workload in his career. I mean he's like kind of the closest thing we have to like a modern day Nolan Ryan or Clemens, who just sort of like and and it's not it's obviously a different era. Not the same guys aren't throwing three hundred innings in a season, but he's the closest that, that we have. Yeah, basically. I've really enjoyed the stories that have coming up about him being a little more analytical about things, like. Brad Osmus, who just got let go by the Tigers, I don't think had very positive reviews of his tenure there. But there were some great stories about how, you know, this one game a couple years ago where Verlander got lit up, he sat him down and he's like, listen, you can't just throw your heat past these guys. You got, you're got you getting a little older. You have to be a little more intelligent about it. And that got Verlander into looking at scouting reports and everything. And now you've got a guy who's got this elite skill, but he's also really smart about it. I think that's why him and the Astros are just like a perfect fit. I'm actually looking forward to what a full season of Justin Verlander in Houston will be like next year, because I think they've really helped him uh, sort of rediscover some of the, the, the skill he had lost. And sure. it's yeah. been a huge payoff for them. Yeah, no question. Uh, and I think the last thing we want to talk about is curveballs and curveballs have been a pretty big story and especially so when lance mccullers came out and threw was it 24 straight to end the game the other night and uh that was fantastic but it's really interesting to kind of look at how these teams have both used curveballs and performed against curveballs so for example when you looked at the astros pitchers during the regular season they threw their curveballs uh 14 of the time fourth most in the majors the dodgers were third most uh but they had by far the highest spin curves in the majors, uh, almost 2,800 RPM, and uh, the average is just under 2,500 RPM. So that's a really high spin curves, and uh, they had a lot of excellent production against. They had a 230 expected weighted on base against, 
fifth best in the majors. So the Astros during the regular season, they throw a lot of curves, they throw a lot of high spin curves. They get good production against them. It's not, as we learned with Seth Lugo, as easy to say high spin equals success, but in this case, it worked out for them. Postseason's been interesting because it's kind of exactly the same. Uh, in the regular season, I said they had a 230 expected weight on a base. Well, postseason, 228 expected weight on a base. Call it identical. Uh, for the eight teams that you know advanced past the wild card, that's tied for the second best. Their curve usage is 16%. Like we said, it was 14% in the regular season. It's about the same. And uh, you know the spin is basically the same. It was 27.82 before, and now it's 27.97. It's not that much of a difference. But it's almost entirely been because of Charlie Morton and Lance McCullers. I mean, those are the two guys who throw the most curves. And uh, of the regular season, they were both tied for 12th of curveball spin rate amongst 230 pitchers who threw 100 curves. As we said, Charlie Morton looked fantastic. 98 in the outside corner. Oh, and here's that hammer curve. Here's Lance McCullers throwing curve, curve, curve. And this is a guy who can throw 96 miles an hour. Here's 24 straight curves. You don't see that anymore. I don't know if you can actually do that sustainably, but it was a lot of fun to watch. I mean, McCullers is sort of a test case where he's kind of building, trying to build his career. Was he like 60% curveballs this year or something? Uh, he's, something he's, like, he's like the right-handed Rich Hill if Rich Hill could throw 96. <laughs> you know, it's really interesting. Uh, and then, you know, from the Dodgers' point of view, uh, I'm kind of looking at this, you know, uh, as the, as hitters, right, against these Houston pitchers. During the regular season, they had a 297 expected weight in base against curves. That was the best in baseball. They only saw 10% curves. That was the second fewest in baseball. There's scouting reports for you. They're doing very good. Don't throw them. The postseason's interesting, though. 208 expected weighted on base against curves. It's actually the weakest of the eight non-wildcard teams. And uh, they're seeing 17% curves. I don't think they've suddenly changed their skill level in the last couple weeks, but I do find that interesting uh, that they're starting to see more curves and performing a little weaker against them. I don't think that's a trend, but it's it's a thing that has happened, and I, I think that's interesting. Yeah, well, I mean, the game one and two starters, Keuchel and Verlander, aren't big curveball guys. I mean, Verlander throws one, but it's one of like you know one of two different breaking pitches he throws. He's by I mean, earlier in his career, he was much more of a straight curveball guy. Now it's just sort of part of his repertoire. It will be fascinating once we get to three and four. Presumably, I don't know how they're going to line up the rotation. They may try and piggyback McCullers and Morton again. They may try and have one start three and start four with. Maybe McHugh is a piggyback for one and Peacock for the other. Um, that's one of those, you know, where we'll, maybe Hinch will, will play his hand today or he'll probably wait, you know, maybe to see how games one and two go before before he decides. But um, that's going to be another interesting subplot. Yeah, I remember we first started talking about spin rate a couple years ago and Colin McHugh was always the first guy we talked about. That he was the first case we knew of where a team had signed a guy because they liked his curveball spin. And he wasn't, you know, that productive with the Mets or with the Rockies. And then he went to the Astros and he's been a, a perfectly usable mid-rotation starter for the last couple years. And we know that the Dodgers, you know, love Rich Hill spin. And we've heard guys on the record saying they signed me because of my spin rate. So I don't think that there's anything to this in the sense that the Dodgers suddenly can't hit curveballs. Um, I do think that not having Corey Seager probably hasn't helped them there. But it, it's interesting because I don't think you're going to see the Astros go into the World Series and suddenly stop throw curveballs, right? Like, that's that's what they do. It's what they're going to continue to do. For sure. So uh, that's our show. And I think, you know, as we've only kind of scraped the surface of there's so many interesting subplots to this story. I'm, I'm, what's your prediction? Um, I don't love the way the Astros are set up right now um, with the lefties starting the first two games. And I think the Dodgers bullpen is deeper. So I think – and they have home field – I'll take the Dodgers in six. See, it's taking any team in six is like the cop-out answer, but it's exactly what I was going to say. So Dodgers in six as well. Like, I feel like you can't be so arrogant as to say, oh, it's going to be over in four or five, but who wants to predict in seven? So Dodgers in six, Dodgers in six. Uh, the next time we speak, I guess we'll catch up on where we are. Thanks for listening to our show. This is the MLB.com StatCast Podcast.
It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro.